I'd like for you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 24 to begin with. I do believe at the point that the bulletin was printed, all I had was a, a listing of passages I may use, so that's why it says selected scripture. Uh, but we've got two passages we'll look at today, Psalm 24, and then also a passage out of 1 Corinthians 16. We'll turn there in a moment. I still hear Bible pages turning, and that is a good sound, uh, because that means you're looking, and you should never, ever, ever take even a pastor's word for it. Look at it for yourself. These are God's words. So, verse 1, chapter 24 of the book of Psalms, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand by his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I didn't want to read a few verses, but most of those that concern the topic today have to do with the very first few. But now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16. And in a moment I'll give explanation as to why these two passages of Scripture go together. First Corinthians 16, and beginning in verse number 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for the truth of the things that we've been able to sing together this morning. But for now, we ask for your help with your living word to first understand it, open our eyes to its truth, and then, Lord... Give us the grace to be obedient to it. And we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we'll start where we left off last week. And where we left off last week in our uh, establishing a biblical basis for missions. We determined that it's going to be very difficult to get excited about missions. 
without first understanding this sacrifice that was made by God in sending his son so that we might have eternal life and salvation. Salvation is built on a sacrifice. Missions is a sacrifice. It costs for us to send people. It costs for those who choose to go. But both of them involve a sacrifice. One, the ultimate sacrifice, and one is a responsive sacrifice. But we've got to understand the gospel, what we read in the gospels, before we get to the book of Acts and understand how that gospel went out and God brought people into the church. Well, we'll do the same thing this morning in like fashion. Any discussion about giving has to begin with an understanding of God's first giving to us all that we have. If we understand that he's the first giver, then we'll understand how he expects giving of us who are now his children should look like him, should act like him, should have the, the family resemblance, in other words. Uh, God giving first to us salvation, we give in response. So in summary, with Psalm 24 that we just read, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Just right off the bat, right out of the gate, we need to make sure we understand the terms. When you have given all that you are and all that you have, all your dreams, all your finances, your children, when everything is signed over as a blank check to the Lord, you have only done, you have only given what's already His. Now when you look at it that way, the rest of this message should, should be tolerable, right? Everything we have is His. The earth is His. The fullness thereof. He created it. If we're His creation, He's our creator, it's all his anyway. John had just finished saying in a couple of weeks ago's study, anything that we've got came from heaven to start with. If we have anything, that's because God has given to us. So why do we squabble with each other about things? And then if we were to read in Romans 11, I put this in here. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? You'll never outgive God. Your generosity in hopes to maybe impress someone else will never impress the Lord. He owns it all. And should we ever give him anything, is it such that he should pay us back? Or that he would be in our debt? That's not the way that it's set up. So when giving is mentioned in a setting like this, Usually what comes to mind is the word tithe or tithing. That seems to be uh, the most regularly used, discussed. Uh, you might even hear uh, in setting up the time where we honor the Lord with His tithe and our offering. You might have heard me say that enough times to cover seven months of Sundays. What is meant by that is the tithe typically is the Lord's. We learn that from the Old Testament. This is what we're going to go through. And then an offering is on top of a tithe. But some of the things that we'll study here today will give some context to a statement like that. And really, uh, a statement like that needs an explanation. Because we're going to see there's a big difference between what the Old Testament taught and what the New Testament taught. 
on the patterns of giving. And that's what we'll spend the balance of our time on this morning. So if you're making notes, this is a good way to start. What does the Bible say about tithing? We'll start with tithing because that's what most people think of as as standard equipment. Well, number one, there's two things. Number one, tithing is the basic pattern of giving to the Lord's work in the Old Testament. If the Old Testament's what we're considering, as far as giving goes, the pattern in the Old Testament was that of tithing. And uh, all the Hebrews were to set aside a tenth of whatever they had, their gain, if it was cattle, if it was uh, the grain harvest, if it was uh, wine or honey. I mean, it, it, not, nothing was not considered as far as the tithe went. And when I say tithe, for those that might not necessarily know what it means, don't take that for granted, uh, a tenth, 10%. Uh, and some think that it has to go back to the idea that it's easy to keep track of because you've got the standard equipment to count what that is uh, so if you got 10 cows you set one aside and that's for the Lord's business the Lord's work and as far as God's chosen people the Jews or the Hebrews in the Old Testament this is what they were to live by we see this in Leviticus 27 and in Numbers 18 if you want to do some homework later I thought it might be interesting to Research what the average Christian in America gives as far as charitable giving. Because that's about all we can find in research. Charitable giving. That is, you get a good old tax deduction for that. Uh, but what would you suppose that would be from uh, the United States tax records? And those who call themselves Christian as far as their religious designation. Somewhere between 2 and 3%. It's not a tenth. Now, it, it's a little difficult to know what data you're working with with a, with a big, large group of people in a survey. And you might find that your mileage varies depending on which survey you look at. But if you consider uh, those at the top of that average that tithe, or more so that number really gets skewed. That You have to get into difficult math, like trying to understand not the average, but the median and the mean. And I won't make you do a quiz to find out what those are. I didn't do good, too good on that myself. But the, the guy in the middle in that survey actually tithes more like 1.62%. Now, out of the same survey, if you just... Consider Protestants. What percentage of Protestants tithe? 10%. And this will explain how that gets skewed. About 12% of Protestant Christians give at least 10% of their income to their local church. Those are the statistics for the inquiring mind that wanted to know. Well, I gave you one thing that we see in the Bible about tithing. Let me give you the second thing about tithing from the Bible. Tithing is not held up as a pattern of giving in the New Testament. The closest thing you'll see in reference to the tithe is in Matthew 23, and we'll look at that in a second, 
where the Pharisees had set their acts of tithing above their acts of kindness and mercy, and Jesus takes them to task for it. So this is the closest reference you're going to get to the tithe as taught in the New Testament. Some say Jesus is teaching this. Others would say maybe not. Well, let's see what it says. Verse 23 of chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. And this is out of a whole uh, list of woes to the church. I believe there are eight of them. For you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The, The more important stuff, the weightier They all have a purpose, but some are heavier than others. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, what is that? The tithing, without neglecting the others. So Jesus is taking, the the emphasis of this passage is him taking a group of Pharisees to task for feeling proud of themselves for tithing, very meticulously, but ignoring kindness and faithfulness uh, and mercy which he says is much more important. Now, he doesn't set it aside here. He doesn't say, ah, tithing, that was Old Testament. Y'all learn that later, but I'm not concerned with that. That's not what he said. He said, you should have done those things. And before we try to lend a lot of nitpickiness to these fellows who we think, you know, have one of those uh, arrow garden uh, hydroponic uh, kitchen countertop Mint and uh, uh, rosemary and, you know, the little gardens that grow under the light and you prune off a little bit of it and you mix up your um, wish it was like Carabas bread dip. Um, now make sure when you prune off one piece, you weigh out a tenth of it in grams and take that to the church. That's not what they were doing. When they would, would bring these in as sources of income, of course... When it's all settled out, a tenth of it is set aside. And to be quite specific about what the Jews under the old covenant, the tithe was where it started. If you add the temple tax and before that the tabernacle tax and other things, you just add it all up in the Old Testament. It was more like 23% on an annual basis. The tithe is where they started. But here in the New Testament, we don't see this. So what do we do with that? A couple of things that, you know, you're, you're looking at an application. If this applies, go to the next step and skip all these others. Well, some of that applies here. If you take the notion that the two testaments don't have very much to do with each other, then the lesson on tithing is basically done when you flip from the Old to the New Testament. If you don't think that they have anything to do. Jesus actually has fulfilled the law, so that being in the past, then maybe it's, uh, it's optional at this point. That's quite up to you. But if you correctly understand, I said correctly there, that the New Testament only makes sense when you start reading in Genesis 1, that the whole Bible is one piece, and that the Old Testament only helps us better understand the New Testament, that if we didn't have the Old Testament, we wouldn't know who the Messiah or Jesus was, and that Jesus does fulfill the Old Testament... But for the purpose of redemption, if it's all one big book and you need it all, then there's more to it than just saying, well, it's gone. And we'll have to apply other passages of Scripture and some Christian maturity to make sure that we get this right. And we'll be very careful in doing so. Reading through the Old Testament, where the tithe is commonplace, you'll notice when you get to the New Testament, 
what one commentator, I love the way he said it, you run into an eloquent silence on the subject of tithing because it just seems to disappear except for what we read in Matthew. Uh, That is significant. We've just got to figure out in what way. Does it mean it's gone or does that mean it needs to continue? But how? Before you start writing in your notes, though, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it, because sometimes in my talking I forget to make certain disclaimers. Don't write down, Isaac is holding up a non-tithing position. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) It might sound like it at this point, but just stick with me, okay? That'd be getting ahead of me. But here's where we need to be careful, okay? If you do some reading on this subject, you won't have to go very far to find lots of authors, authors that I respect, authors that I use in preparing messages. Their work is very good. But you will find some that will say that tithing is in the New Testament and clear. What do you do with that? Well, it's tough to know what to do with it especially with respect for those you're reading, but it, at the same time, aggravates me. Uh, Because a guy who will take something and put it into a place where it's clearly not might also take something out that's clearly there. We've got to be honest with this book. We were talking not long ago of the water into wine, remember? And I took a moment to talk about what this passage says regarding alcohol. It's a hot-button topic in churches. Was this alcoholic? We don't have, it doesn't say in the text, but given all the culture and, and the Old Testament, it likely was. Jesus made it, and it says it was good. That's what that means. What does that say about your responsibility to not become sinfully drunk? Nothing in that passage. That stuff's other places. But all that I'm trying to say is this. There are people that would, would, do not want to make that an alcoholic beverage because they don't want to see that Jesus is providing a mechanism for someone to fall into sin. Well, Jesus healed blind men who could use their eyes to look at things they shouldn't look at. But we don't apply that to those verses, do we? The point is, Jesus holds you morally responsible to do with what He's given to you as a gift and to do it under what He calls sin or not sin. He expects you to actually behave. There's actually commandments He expects you to follow. And we can't follow them all. That's why He sent Jesus to do it for us and give us His obedience in salvation and then still he expects you to behave so when we're looking at this here we don't want to put in what's not there and we don't want to take out what is there I have to be honest with this and this is where I say folks you will have to read your Bibles you'll have to know this stuff you'll have to be responsible for it you can't just go around shopping for what you like best from some guru or, or, or seminarian or your pastor for that matter and say that's what I believe because that person said it. And if it's a loophole you're looking for, you're going to get caught in that anyway because I'm not going to be held responsible for what you do 
in heaven. I'm going to be held responsible for what I teach you. You'll be responsible to behave according to what you know. And in a thing like tithing, boy, the, the conflict of interest and ability for self-service is huge. That's why it has to be dealt with so carefully to make sure we're looking at what we're seeing and understand what God would have us to understand. So what does the New Testament say about giving? Not tithing, but giving. Remember, tithing was the pattern for giving in the New Testament. Giving is in both Testaments. The pattern for giving in the Old Testament was tithing. The pattern in the New Testament is not necessarily tithing because tithing isn't mentioned. What we need to do is find out what the New Testament says about our giving and not mix up the patterns with the principles. It actually has a lot to say about giving. And in this regard, we see everything from uh, how to give to the attitude in which we're supposed to give. And we'd need a whole month of series to go through all the things in the New Testament that, is, that are said about giving. We're to give generously, we're to give cheerfully, we're to give sacrificially. All those are there. Without getting ahead of ourselves, because in this passage in 1 Corinthians, we'll get into some specifics. But what we often see in the New Testament, and this is where you'll need to do your homework to verify the contents of what I'm about to say, because it's a, it's a sweeping statement across more than just this passage we're reading. What you're going to see often under grace is a type of giving that actually might be restricted by a percentage levy across the board. We see cases of people giving a lot more than 10%. We see people giving less than 10%. We're under grace where the law is written in our heart rather than written on a stone. It might be better to do away with that standard because that standard might be used by some as the very loophole they're looking for. You say it's only 10%. Well, I can live with that because 90% is mine. Well, that might not be the case. And again, nobody's making any rules here. That will be between you and what the Lord, should I say, lays on your heart. We'll get into that later. A, 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 a percentage is never seen here, at least specifically and mentioned uh, in the same way that the tithe was. So you could summarize this last thought this way. If the tithe is used, perhaps it will be looking at it less like a ceiling and more like a floor. That's at least what we're, what we're keeping on our head right now. So thus far, and if you make notes, this is kind of important, okay? And I'll say it twice just so you can uh, make sure you've got it. So far as what we've covered, we can say the New Testament does not teach the tithe as a pattern of giving, but neither does it set it aside. You won't find a passage of Scripture like that either. So we can say thus far, the New Testament does not teach the tithe as a pattern of giving, but neither does it set it aside. There are no verses for that either. Okay? That being said, there's a, there's a lot of that being said here because all of these are supported by the one previously. 
It is then not unreasonable to assume that the New Testament presupposes that our giving under grace would be like or equal or even more than God's people giving under the law in the Old Testament. Now read that one more time. It is then not unreasonable to assume, we're making an assumption here, that the New Testament presupposes that our giving under grace in the New Testament would be equal to or more or like or similar to, however you want to describe it, what God's people did under the law in the Old Testament. But with this one caveat, that would be all we could say. If you find a church that wants to say more than that, that we've got it held up in the Old Testament, we don't see it in the New Testament, we're going to assume that in the New Testament it's a lot like in the Old Testament. If that's what they say, that's cool. Because it's a pretty reasonable assumption. But if they say, no, we want to make it more, well, they have no basis in Scripture at that point. We can't make it say what we, don't, what we do want it to say or not say what we don't want it to say. Because Scripture hasn't said these things, neither can we. And this, again, is on your honor. You be the judge. You're smart people. You have Bibles Do your own study. So let's look at a passage of Scripture, the one we read earlier, a little closer. And what we're going to see in here is some very practical principles for our giving. I think they'll make sense to you, and uh, I hope they'll uh, be of benefit in your attempt to be obedient to what the Lord has asked of us. This is the passage here in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And it begins by saying, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. Now the word collection here, uh, that is basically uh, a mechanism for the offering. Collections, how they receive their offering. Different churches receive their offering different ways. We're going to talk about that next week. All the different ways you can give to this church write an old-fashioned check well I don't have a checking account well you can do it online Uh, there's so many different ways we can do this in this context there was a collection for this offering and uh, the collection is not the offering it's how they did the offering and that'll come up again next week but look what takes place in verse 2 here's where we see the the principles on the first day of every week Each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now this, of course, is when they were meeting together. And they have since. And that's a long discussion, uh, which is is a very good discussion. But it has to do with how in the Old Testament it's on Saturday, which is called the Sabbath. And in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Christ, it's on the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what we as Christians have done since. But on that day, when they meet together every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So the first of three principles for biblical giving is regularity. Now, Paul is telling these churches this is the way they're supposed to do it. We can't argue with this. This is inspired scripture. There is a regularity here. And why would that be important? Well, imagine the opposite of it. Sometimes that's a good way to figure something out. What's the opposite of regularity? Irregularity. How many of you like to get paid irregularly? 
How would you like to manage a church's finances on irregular giving? How would you like to be a missionary trying to get your support together with your family in tow? And it's just not coming in at all regularly. Can we count on this? Can we not? There's a parable of the builder who set out to build a house and he didn't take account as to what he had and halfway through he ran out of stuff and everybody laughed at him, right? We can't send our missionaries onto the field in violation of that parable. They need to know what they've got and with irregular giving, that, that is an incredible difficulty. And the reason for this is Paul saying, this needs to be done regularly and over time so that when I get here, I can take that to the people that need it rather than doing that all at the last minute. And it won't be the same as if we did it over time. Same as you're not going to contribute to your retirement after or a week before you, you, you retire. Like cramming for an exam. I'll cram for my retirement. Uh, it, the idea here is that it has a, a, a pattern, and a pattern requires a plan. It's good for the recipient, but it's also good for the giver because it's harder to forget if you've got a plan in place. And not planning to do something is actually planning not to do it. This just goes back to the things your mother taught you when you were beginning to put your finances together. It's not rocket science. Well, let's see what happens next. The rest of that verse. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. That's the next active phrase here. And it gives us the second principle uh, for giving. And that is proportionally. Now we're getting into a pattern that might have something to say about the tithe. Now the beautiful thing about a tithe was that it was a percentage. And 10% of a dollar is, is proportional to 10% of a hundred dollars or a million dollars. The more you got, the more the tenth is. The less you've got, the smaller the tenth is. But this says here it's to be proportional as he may prosper. It means in keeping with one's income. Now you tell me, does it sound like Paul is leaving this up to you before the Lord? What does proportional mean? Are you supposed to submit uh, your 1040 to the church so they can see how you're prospered? <laughs> and then assign to you a reasonable uh, amount? No, that seems to be considered a private thing. And this is perhaps because Paul is acutely aware of the fact that it's God who judges the heart. It's God who will see. It's God who gave you what you have. It's God who will require a portion of what you have. And it's up to you to respond obediently to the way in which he leads. The idea of prosper actually means according to your prosperity. Again, we refer back to Psalm 24. Where did our prosperity come from? And again, it seems the pattern here is that it's up to you. You've heard it said before. I've heard it said from people here. Well, that's between me and the Lord. Exactly. But there's one thing I must add to that just to make sure we all know. And we're, we're studying Scripture and we're learning here. We're going to be held accountable for that. Sometimes we like to say, between me and the Lord. And I'm just really not feeling it. Well, have you really asked Him? You know, there's, there's ways we can 
manipulate that feeling it or not feeling it, right? Know this. If the Bible says that we will give an account. This is Jesus speaking. For every idle word that we say. Do you think it's a stretch to think that it's the same as far as our finances? That if we give an account for every idle word, we'll probably give an account for every red cent? It's a horrifying thought, just looking back. Uh, it was one of those things that really straightens up the conscientious Christian who considers what it is the Lord has for them to do. I can understand why some ministries would want to minimize this conversation because it's not easy to have. And the, the, really the standard equipment with even uh, probably the younger of our generations is that they've been told the church is out for money. That's all it's about. And there's this natural uh, pushback on this. That's my business. Thank you. Leave me alone. I can understand why churches would try to step back from that because it's not fun to discuss. But the church needs to take serious in their teaching capacity the idea of helping prepare their membership for the day they will give an account to their creator for how they've lived their life, how they've thought their thoughts, how they've spent their money, how they've treated one another, all these things. It's just one out of a thousand things that we're going to be held accountable for. But putting an offering box in the back of the church and never talking about it and hoping people give is one way to avoid a discussion like this, but it's also a way to not do your members any favors by actually telling them, God will hold you responsible for this. I'm not going to tell you what to give, but don't think that He's not either. He will. And He'll do so lovingly and kindly, and He's not meant to confuse you. And when it's over and you're obedient, it, it's going to make you happy because He wouldn't ask you to do something to make you feel miserable. That's not a loving father. But we have to say that. And I at least feel better by saying it. Nobody here this morning could say, well, when I got to the judgment and got nailed for those things, Mooneyham didn't tell me. (laughs) So that's done. Number three. The third principle of biblical giving is that it would be administered properly. That's verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. The idea of an accreditation process by a formal letter, it sounds. This language, of course, is to demonstrate the presence of integrity on the part of the church who's taken receipt of that giving and then responsible to see that it gets to the place that it needs to get or be. In Acts 4, the gifts of the congregation were placed at the feet of the apostles. The apostles are gone now. That's not the way we do it. In their place, and even what we see in the New Testament, there are elders for oversight and deacons for serving. It's the deacons here that uh, crunch all the numbers and uh, deliberate over the process of qualifying missionaries that we give to. Uh, later this month, we're going to have our our, uh, our spring members meeting, or business meeting as you call it. Uh, in the fall, we're going to have another one. By that time, the uh, financial review that this church willingly submits itself to will likely be part of that. And when it is read by the third party who did it, that's not just gobbledygook. 
That's to make sure that you know that what goes on with the money that you give to this church is handled properly with integrity. So you have faith. Once you put it in the plate, your obedience is over. But you'd like to know that on the other side of it, there's no fraud. Uh, that it's been carried out as if exactly the way it's described here. We're not without our means of stewardship, accounting, and transparency as well. And it'll be for the purpose of demonstrating integrity as to how the funds you entrust to this church are spent faithfully. Well, we've covered those three points. Uh, what's left to say? Some of you, I hope nothing. But I do have at least two more things up my sleeve. While we're at it, because... Teaching expositionally, which if you're visiting with us, that's what we usually do. We start in one passage and we go through until we're in, done with the book. So this topical preaching here we do during missions month or similar things. Uh, it might be a while before we get to this topic again. So here are at least two more thoughts with some verses to back them up. What about someone who says, my heart isn't in it. I don't want to be a hypocrite by giving against my own attitude. After all, God says he likes a cheerful giver. <laughs> Remember, I, we talked about the manipulative type of, of feeling it. But I've heard this, and there are people who would sincerely say, I can't do it with the right spirit. Why do I do it at all? I did hear one pastor say, uh, well, you just keep giving until you like doing it. <laughs> uh, which again, if, if you're worried about sounding self-serving, I, I'd leave that out. But here's what I would say to that. I'm going to, to say that I think that's likely a euphemism for an excuse rather than a reason. And it's not unlike so many other things in life. Uh, can you tell me that every day when you get up and go to your place of work, that when you get there, you can tell everyone in the office... My heart is so in this. No. Do you wake up every morning of your married life feeling it? Or do sometimes you feel a little more married or a little less married? What about when you take your vitamins or eat your vegetables or go to the doctor? You know, I, I just don't feel it. I, I'm not, I don't want to be a hypocrite by going to the dentist when I don't feel like going. Okay, maybe that's why your teeth are falling out. <laughs> but really, this has a lot to do with growing up, doesn't it? Life is full of that type of stuff that our heart's just not in. We live in hypocrisy, if that is the truth. But there's a verse of Scripture that has to do with our, where our treasure is. That's where our heart will be. Um, I can remember uh, hearing this quoted once. Uh, back when we were younger and mom and dad had actually uh, bought from my grandparents their home at, at the beach at Oak Island. I don't have it anymore. But a hurricane's coming. Where my treasure is, my heart is. <laughs> that, because you, you've got interest there. Well, what about the idea of putting your money where you want your heart to be? My heart's not in this church. Well, invest in it. And I'm not talking about your money first, your time. They say that the biggest complaints come from the cheapest seats, right? 
well, raise the price of that seat and you'll be amazed how little criticism you have of it. Because you're in on it. You're invested. That's why people hold on to dumb stocks that lose the money. Because they feel like they're married to them. I paid so much for that stock that's worth nothing. GE's mine like that. Many of you are holding that. You know what I mean. What else do I want to say about this? What about the person who says, I used to give to Wake Chapel, but not anymore because after the meeting I saw they have enough. I didn't mean either one of these to be funny. But if that's the way you want to take it, at least I haven't soured your spirit previously, right? Well, there are those who would say that, perhaps. And I can understand that thinking. But I want to submit that that is probably not the correct thinking. Because of verses like Galatians 6, 6, where it says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now that could really sound self-serving because it sounds like a one-to-one, a, a student to teacher. But this covers much more than that. This covers a ministry where you attend with your family and your family is taught and equipped. You're growing spiritually. It makes sense that that's where you would contribute first. Why? Because if it's working there, it can work for others. And to look at it as if they've got enough presupposes that status quo is all we'll worry about going forward. But what if God has growth in store for this place? Then he'll need growth in the giving. And usually where people start praying, things start happening, and usually giving comes right along with it. The Lord knows what he's doing, and he has no problems raising the support for the works he plans to do. But that type of thinking might might have us late to that game than we would like to be. The principle here isn't only descriptive of one person, but ministries, families, not just from your pastor, but from Sunday school teachers and children's teachers and volunteers. If you're fed here, taught here, by all means, consider supporting the ministry here. And along the same line of thinking, how in the world would we grow our missions unless... The giving was not just to sustain this work, but on top of that, and to supply other works as we branch out. So here's the conclusion. For some of you, yes, finally here, because this sermon's getting longer than I wanted it to be. Ultimately, this is a personal thing. I do believe that's the way the New Testament is teaching. Uh, And you might even take it a little further and say that it's a private thing. I don't want to know who gives what here. That's a conflict of interest just in my brain. That, that's, that's the Lord's business. And that's why it's difficult to talk about it. Because of the private nature of it. The personal nature of it. That's why it's tough to bring the subject up. More specifically, giving is a spiritual thing. And this comes from Hebrews uh, thirteen sixteen. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I'd go a long way to search for something that would please my Lord, right? I like to be pleasing to Him. Well, this is an easy one. He's already said so. Kind of brings up the memory of the, the, the widow's might. Remember that? And I've heard that passage so abused in so many different ways. But here you've got this older woman with 
small amount of money, which represents basically all she has, and she's there, and Jesus uses this as an object lesson, and says she has given out of her poverty rather than out of her abundance. But did Jesus stop her and give it back? No. Now you say, well, that's just the way preachers do one another. They'll never turn down an offering. It's a mite. The church isn't going to close their doors over a mite. And if, the, if Psalm 24 is correct, he owns it all anyway. He's not going broke, even if we all stop giving. He's got means to carry on the business for which he died. The point was, she not only gave in obedience, but it seemed to be there, there was a need for her to give, to contribute, even as small as it was. There's a purpose in that. One last story. I was with my daddy one time uh, on a visit. We didn't do that together a lot, but every now and then we would, and it usually was after a staff meeting when we were together at a place where we'd have lunch. And we made a visit at an assisted living place um, in Danville. We had one person to visit. We made the visit. It was near, uh, it was in October somewhere near Halloween. Because at the point where we had finished our visit, we needed to go, um, which sometimes is, is difficult to, to get away. These folks have little or no conversation all day, and it was a good visit. But she would not let us out of that room without giving us some candy. She had a bowl on the, on the dresser with Halloween candy in it. And she insisted, you, you need some candy. And I noticed my dad didn't put up any fight. He just got some candy. And it was kind of like, son, get some candy. <laughs> um, and and we, we both got a couple of pieces. I put them in my pocket. Walked down the hall, in the elevator, down the first floor, down another hall, crossed the parking lot, got into the car. And then right before dad cranked the car, he said, I didn't need any candy today. But she needed to give some candy today. And don't forget that. And I haven't. Because it's a, a wonderful lesson. And that might just be she needs to talk today. Or she needs to in some way feel like she was able to contribute to you. And some, she's part of it. Even if it's a piece of candy. I think there's some truth in that. There's a reason why the Lord wants us to pray when he knows everything. There's a reason why he wants us to give when he owns everything. So we're in on what he's doing. And just like those guys who, who, who were in on the whole water to wine. You remember they went to the feast and he had some. This is great. Everybody's having a, And then that little phrase. But the servants knew the miracle. Because they were in on the process. So some of us, all of us, some way or another, need to give. Now if you want to write down something and you haven't write written anything down yet today this is good enough to take home from the sermon two things doesn't matter which testament you're reading in the this is true of giving old testament and new testament okay number one it is always a portion you need to give something and number two it's sometimes a sacrifice sometimes a mite is a sacrifice Sometimes something a lot bigger than a mite is a sacrifice. But that sacrificial 
thing is between you and the one who gave his son in sacrifice for you. Always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and for giving us enough truth in your word about money to know how to handle it. Lord, right now, I think we can say we understand right now what we need is to be obedient. So, Lord, impress upon our hearts what you would have us do. And may we be responsible and faithful and obedient. It's a very private issue, Lord, but may we trust you with that as well. Thank you for this church, this generous church. A church that's footprint, as far as missions go, is quite respectable. Lord, bless the rest of our time studying how we can better serve our missionaries. And we'll give you all the praise and glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you bow your head with me, please? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message that Isaac has brought for us today. We thank you for him and his family, Lord. You have directed the pulpit committee to direct a man of God who who so clearly explains your word and gives such good examples, and we thank you for him. He is truly a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and I thank you that we have eternal life through profession of faith in him. And if there's someone here today, dear Lord, that doesn't know him as Savior and Lord, I beg them to please let today be a day that they say they believe in Jesus. It's so important not to turn away from God. Thank you, dear Lord, that when we are called home, we, our faith will become sight. And this week, as my brother was called home to be with you, I know that he looked and said all the years that he came to White Chapel Christian Church and shared fellowship with us. It was so one is so wonderful to see what he has heard all about all his life. And we thank you that we will see Jesus too and all our loved ones when we are called home. Please guide and direct us, Lord, as we leave today. Our mission of the week is Transworld Radio, Randy and Rose C. Please bless them, Lord. They're truly a blessing here at Wake Chapel, and we ask you to guide and direct them in Transworld Radio as they put out the word of Jesus Christ. As we leave today, dear Lord, let us look at the flags that represent people who had lived in a comfort of their home but were called out to leave and go to foreign countries where some of them are in danger. But they are there proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And they're not the only missionaries but every single soul in here that knows Jesus Christ as Savior are missionaries too. So let's go out and bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ until we meet next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.